In 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting at verse, about verse 11, we're going to go through chapters 3 and 4. And as I've kind of mentioned before, because we're, we're talking about Old Testament narrative, there's a lot of material, so we're not able to always cover everything. You know, you go through an epistle that's five chapters, you can kind of do a verse by verse. It's a little more difficult with, with Old Testament narrative, so we'll be kind of jumping around a little bit and, and going through some things. But um, today we're going to look at the calling of Samuel. So it's the calling of Samuel. Something else I had mentioned about this book, it's interesting, the book is called 1 Samuel, and then we have 2 Samuel, and the books really are not about Samuel. But we do get um, some insight into who Samuel is, and uh, today is, in some respects, um, about Samuel, but we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about Samuel. We're going to talk about his calling and how that relates to um, Israel's history. So let's go ahead and, and break this down. Last week we looked at Hannah's prayer, and in that we saw three theological truths that I had mentioned we would see throughout the book because Hannah's prayer, after she um, gives up Samuel, her son, is a um, bookend to the book. And then David's psalm later on in Second Samuel, the end of Second Samuel is like the second half of that. It's the other bookend. And so these two bookends encapsulate and help us to understand everything that's found in the book of First Samuel. And so there were three theological principles we saw last week in Hannah's prayer that will be reflected throughout the book. And sometimes they're all reflected. Sometimes you might have one aspect reflected. In today's passage, we'll see all three of those reflected. But they were, if you remember... God is a God who saves or delivers. That's a principle we see throughout the whole entire Old Testament. In fact, the Old and the New Testament are all about God's redemptive plan. God has revealed himself as a God who saves. A second principle is that he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We see that in Jesus Christ. It was a constant theme of his ministry as he confronted the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and, uh, their arrogance and their pride and how God ultimately um, opposed them, but exalted the humble the lowly, the weak. But then the third principle was that God protects his people, but destroys those who oppose him. So there's that element of of God judging and destroying the wicked, but protecting the righteous, if you will. And we saw that as we studied through the book of Romans, that our salvation comes as a package that includes eternal security, that God's role once he saves us, is to um, complete us to the day of our perfection in Christ. In other words, he will maintain us and protect us. We don't have to worry about losing our salvation. And we saw all three of those themes last week as we looked at Hannah. And I also mentioned that we saw those not only in her her, um, psalm, but in David's psalm, and then in Mary's Magnificat, in the Gospel. And it's because that's who our God is. And so as we go through this book, we'll see those themes sort of repeated. Today, as we look at the calling of Samuel, we're going to see those things spelled out pretty, um, pretty boldly. So why don't you go ahead and turn to chapter 2 with me. I'm going to read through cha- uh, verses 12 through 17 here, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. But chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, starting in verse 12, we learn this. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord, and the custom of the priests with the people... And any man, or when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, and he will not, or, and he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, 
they must surely burn the fat first and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, no, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Then the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. What a great way to start off a passage, right? Notice that it refers to him as worthless men. Let's get into this. The corruption of the priests and the sins of Eli is what this is about here. I think we've talked about this before, that this was a rough time in Israel's history. Not only um, did they have these corrupt judges that just weren't very good, they were disobedient, but the priesthood was absolutely in a mess as well. Um, They were corrupt, is the best way to describe it. They weren't doing their jobs. So today's passage actually begins with a picture of this corruption. It was fairly common. There's two specific sins that are mentioned about the priests in this passage. The first one has to do with the sacrifices. According to the Old Testament law, when priests presented the offerings before the Lord, the fat, along with the raw meat, was to be burned. And so the fat would be burned off. That was God's portion. They could then have um, the right, or I'm sorry, the breast of whatever it was they were sacrificing and the right thigh. That's according to Leviticus. That's the Old Testament law. So the, they would take the meat and sacrifice it, and God would get the raw meat and the, and the fat. It would all be burned off. And the priests would get the right thigh and the breast. That was theirs. That was God's provision to them. And it was always more than enough. They didn't go for want. But what's happening in this particular passage here? They weren't satisfied with that as priests. So in some instances, they would demand, no, give us the raw meat. Well, that was God's portion. And so they would, when they would go to Shiloh, which is where the temple was at the time, it wasn't in Jerusalem yet, it wasn't actually the temple, it was a tabernacle, but... Um, so they would, the people would go there to sacrifice. They would bring their sacrifices and they would burn them there. Well, the priests would show up and they'd say, now give us the raw meat, we want that. And if a man said, well, no, no, that's God's portion, you can't take that, they would threaten them with force. Well, we'll just take it from you. They also did this weird thing where they would take this three-pronged fork and when meat was being boiled rather than burned, they would basically go and sort of stab it in the pot and take whatever they wanted from it. And again, it wasn't theirs. These were God's sacrifices. And so the first sin that we see here by these priests is that they would demand these portions of the sacrifice that were reserved for God. And so not only were they robbing God of his sacrifices, but they were robbing the individuals of those offerings and presentations before the Lord. You know, it would be much like if, say, um, we put Steve Schmeckel at the back there where we have our little you know, box where you can put your offering for the month. If we put Steve back there and he's kind of just like he's watching you come by and you go to put your offering in that box, Steve kind of reaches over and just takes it. He not only would steal that from God's work at the church, but he would steal your offering. And that's... Now, Steve wouldn't do that. I know that. At least... I don't think he would do that. Um, but you get the point, right? These priests were thieves. They were ripping off God. They were ripping off the people. And they were, they were brutal. I would imagine here that this reputation for taking it by force means they probably had, in different instances, probably did take it by force when they wanted to. Now, the second sin actually has to do with their immorality. Now, it's not specifically stated here, but it, it's found later on in verse 22. Jump, just jump down to verse 22 with me. Now Eli was very old and he heard all that his sons were doing to all of Israel and how they would lay with women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. There were these um, women servants, if you will, that would serve the temple. In fact, it's go back to Exodus, um, I think it's chapter 38. It talks about these women who would serve the temple. And what the priests were doing is go having, having an affairs with these women. 
committing immorality. So they were not only stealing, but they were committing immoral acts as well. Kind of stomach turning when you think about it. Especially, you know, the priesthood was different than, say, the pastorate. You know, we have certain standards for pastors, and we expect those standards to be to be uh, held to, but the priests were the specific designated group that served the temple of God in His presence, and here they are behaving like this. They're corrupt. And so we see that in this passage today. Now at the front and center of this, unfortunately, were Eli's sons. Look at verse 12. It says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. This phrase, worthless men... Um, one of the Old Testament lexicons, which is kind of like a dictionary, when you when you look up a Greek or a Hebrew word to try to help understand it, I use what are called lexicons. Describes it this way: This phrase refers to good for nothing, base fellows. In the Old Testament, it's used to describe wicked, ungodly, disobedient thugs and criminals who stand in opposition to God and those who follow Him. That's the way this word is used: worthless men. They were a scourge. No value. Um, That's a pretty bold statement. But that's the way God saw it. These were supposed to be men who were to represent the people. They were supposed to stand between God and the people. To represent the people. To offer sacrifices that would provide forgiveness. You know, we're told that Jesus Christ is our high priest, the mediator that stands between us and God. We have our salvation because of him. And the priests were supposed to represent that. But they were immoral. They were thugs. They were criminals. They were thieves. And again, Eli's own sons, the chief priest, his own sons, are listed first, right out of the gate. In verse 17, you don't have to jump there, it says this, Their sin was great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. So we start off this passage with this description of these corrupt priests. Now, I believe the reason we have this, the reason the author records this, is because he's going to set up a contrast between these priests and Samuel. Let's look at verses 18 through 21. Read this with me. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. And his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when he would, or when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one who was dedicated to the Lord. And they went on their way home. The Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Not a lot is said about Samuel here, here, but there are some interesting things that kind of give us an insight into who he was. Um, Three very simple statements about Samuel here that I think describe that to us. The first is actually in verse 11. It says that the boy ministered before the Lord before Eli the priest. Now I think the reason that's significant is um, the word that's used there indicates that he had priestly duties within the temple. Again, this is just a young boy, Samuel, but he's performing priestly duties in the temple as part of his daily routine. Um, We have this contrast, obviously, because you have Eli's sons who were not. They were in the position officially. They were to serve the temple as, as the sons of the high priest. They weren't doing their job, and we have this very simple declaration here that Samuel was. It says that he was ministering before the Lord. Um, mentions the ephod that he had. 
Um, it's all part of his role as a priest. Um, the second statement is found in verse 21. It says this, And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. A more literal rendering of that would be, And the boy Samuel grew up with Yahweh. There's a little bit different there. The stress on that phrase is that he grew up experiencing the favor and the relationship of Yahweh, his God. So it's not that he simply grew up in the temple before God. It's the idea that he grew with God, that he had a relationship with him. Remember what it says about the the priests? It says they were worthless men who, what? Did not know the Lord. This phrase is the direct opposite. That Samuel actually grew up knowing his God, grew up not just in the presence of Yahweh, but grew up with Yahweh. Almost speaks of it as a possession. He possessed that relationship with him. It's also repeated in chapter 3, verse 19, where it says, Thus Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. Direct opposite, the Lord was not with Eli's sons, because they didn't know him. Now the broader context of our, of our section here um, gives us a pretty good indication what that meant for him to grow up with the Lord. It meant that he experienced God's favor. We see that in the third statement about Samuel here. It's actually found in verse 26, not in the passage I just read, but it says this, Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor with both the Lord and men. Can you see the contrast there between the priests who were supposed to be doing their job, they should have known better, and this young boy... It's what he is at this point, this young boy Samuel that grew up with the Lord, that knew the Lord, that had the Lord's favor. Um, It's pretty remarkable if you ask me. It's all about contrast. Eli's sons were wicked, but by contrast, in fact, the Christian Standard Version actually uses that phrase, by contrast. So the the Christian Standard Version of the Bible actually (coughs) tries to make the point deliberately that what the author is trying to show us here is there was a direct contrast between Eli's wicked sons who were supposed to be priests and Samuel who knew the Lord, that served the Lord. So it gives us our first indication as to who Samuel was. Another way in which Samuel stands in stark contrast to Eli's sons is a little bit more subtle. Um, It's interesting that it mentions the parents here. Um... Eli, we're going to find out a little bit later, is kind of questionable. But um, in verse 19, we find that Samuel's parents were faithful. They would make regular yearly pilgrimage up to the temple. Not only that, we learn that Hannah would make her son a little ephod every year. And what that tells us is that she was encouraging his ministry before the Lord. She was supplying him and encouraging him with a new outfit every year to stand before the Lord and to perform his duties. And so mom was there beside him encouraging him in his ministry to do the right thing. Um, we're reminded in the passage of verse 20 that she dedicated Samuel to the Lord. Um, 21 says that he rested in God's favor. And so we get this little glimpse at the parents. When you look at Eli, you can jump all the way down into verse 29. God is talking to Eli and he says, when you, you know, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded in the dwelling and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choice, choicest of every offering my people Israel. God just rebukes Eli. In fact, it wasn't just Eli's sons because the language here, you make yourselves. Which means Eli was guilty of doing the same thing the priests were. And so we get this interesting contrast 
You know, Sam, Samuel's parents were are shown in this letter or this book as these devoted, God-fearing, God-loving, dedicated people. In contrast to Eli, who let his sons get away with this kind of stuff for 40 years, and then we learn he even did it himself. So did he wonder why his sons turned out the way they did? And Maybe Samuel turned out the way that he did. So the author here is setting up this contrast. He describes the wickedness of these priests. And then in his very modest, um, very short introduction to Samuel, gives us this contrast as to who Samuel was. The chapter goes on now to talk about the judgment of Eli's sons. Look at verses 22 through 37. Let me read that for you. Now, Eli was very old. And he heard all of his son, or all that his sons were doing to all of Israel and how they laid with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, Why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from all these people. No, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. So we have Eli here who gets wind of what his sons are doing. But yet we're told that he's also doing it himself, which, so it shouldn't be a shock to him. But he's going to go and confront his sons. It's almost a little bit too late because it's when he's old. So the author is deliberately sort of indicating to us he let this go on for a long period of time and didn't do anything about it until he was old. Verse 25, And if one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. It's a pretty hard statement, but what what Eli actually does here is he tries to come up with a legal argument. Basically, you know, if you do this against God, he's going to get you. That's kind of what he's saying. Instead of saying, you men are priests, you're violating God, you're taking his sacrifice, you're hurting the people, he kind of focuses on God's going to get you because of what you're doing. It's kind of a, like I said, it's, it's a legal argument that he uses here. Not really the best way to approach his own kids. It should have been, again, their character and what they were doing. But in some respects, he's, again, trying to come up with this legal argument of correcting their behavior. But it's interesting because everything we see in this passage seems to indicate that his sons were a mess and that Eli was a mess as well. And we see some redeeming things, you know, the way that he treats Hannah and other things, but yet it's just not good. It's just not good. I find it interesting, too, here that Eli learned. It implies he learned through the grapevine. These men are serving in the temple with Eli, and yet he's not all that familiar with some of their behavior. It's just, there's all kinds of backward stuff about it. He says, the evil things that I hear from all the people, or the report which I hear circulating among God's people. I half wonder if maybe this is the author's way of sort of indicating that Eli's kind of clueless which God's priests should never be clueless, I guess. Um, they're supposed to be aware. They're supposed to know the law, you know? It's kind of like parents, when we see parents who have no clue what their kids are doing, you know, get in trouble at school or whatever, and they're shocked because my, my kid would never do that, you know, and you're like, really? Have you been paying attention? You know? Um, that's where we kind of get this picture of Eli. It's not a very flattering picture. Um, you also notice something else that's kind of missing from this. Um, Eli's sons don't seem to show any remorse at all. Look at how they respond when he confronts them. It says, But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. They were remorseless, had no remorse for what they did, didn't seem to care. Um, it's an interesting phrase that the Lord says he wanted to put him to death. 
Um, I suspect that that's, it's a hard verse to sort of understand and comprehend for us because we don't usually picture God as desiring to put people to death, do we? But the thing we have to remember is that God is a God of judgment as well and righteousness. And we see in this particular instance that these men were hard of heart. And when somebody is hard of heart and they demonstrate that and they have absolutely no willingness or ability, if you will, um, because of that hardness of heart to re- repent or to feel remorse, God judges them. He does just that. You know, Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God, it says, is poured out against all unrighteousness of men. And we see in that passage three times where it says, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. So the passage here about God desiring to put them to death simply means that God was willing to carry out and to execute His righteous judgment against them because of the hardness of their hearts. It doesn't mean that God was thrilled. God does not delight in hurting people. God does not delight in... um, putting people to death. In fact, when when Peter is addressing his readers and he's dealing with the concept of well, where, is, where is he? Because people in Peter's day were saying, where is Jesus? Why hasn't he come back yet? And they're sort of mocking that idea. Peter rebukes them and basically says, you don't understand. God is long-suffering. He doesn't want any to perish. So he's willing to wait. He's willing to withstand, he's willing to put up with the sin of mankind in the hopes that the longer he withholds his judgment, more will come to repentance. And that fits with what we see in the beginning of Romans where it says the kindness of God drives men to repentance. And so God is patient. He's willing to wait. He doesn't desire. He doesn't want to put people to death. He doesn't want. He doesn't get his kicks out of that. It's not like he's sitting here going, <laughs> I won't let these men repent because I just can't wait to kill them. That's not the point of the author here. It's just that their hearts had become so hard that they were beyond remorse. We're going to see a little bit later that they'll ultimately be put to death because of their behavior. According to the law, the penalty for immorality was death. That's exactly what God intended to carry out for them. So, God actually ends up pronouncing judgment on him. When you look at verses 27 through, through the rest, uh, I think, uh, through th- verse 36, it says, Then a man of God came to Eli, that's Samuel. A man of God came and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests? He's talking about Eli's family here to go up to my altar and to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me, and I did not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offerings, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? So what is he basically saying there? He's basically saying, look, Eli, you don't understand something. I chose the Levites out of all the Israelites to serve me, to be in my temple. I provided for you, and yet you don't respect my sacrifices. You constantly kick against them. You see the the wickedness in that? He says that they were honor he was honoring his own sons by not judging them, not correcting their behavior. He honored them above him, the Lord, and it wasn't appropriate. Verse 30 then, Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever, but now 
the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Does that match one of our principles that we talked about last week? Yeah, the Lord says, If you honor me, I'll honor you. If you don't, I won't honor you. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel and an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be a sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul, and I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, Please assign to me one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread. There's a lot found in here. Basically what he's telling Eli is, you know what? I set it up so that the Levites would make their living serving me in the temple and I would provide for them. And he said that that line would be a forever line, but in this particular instance he's saying, I'm going to cut off your family from the Levites. And he actually does that and Solomon, um, Solomon actually took and replaced Abathar, who was a descendant of Eli, and actually put somebody else, a priest named Zadok, in place of him. And Zadok then fulfilled the, the promises. In other words, the, the lineage of always having a priest there. And so God basically tells him, I'm going to cut you off. Now, elders in Israel were also the, one of the most significant um, groups because they were the ones who led and directed, etc. And he says, you're not going to have an old man in your line anymore. They're going to die young. And so what he's basically telling Eli is you will have no more influence at all in Israel. I'm going to cut you off. And he did that by basically putting to death two of the two sons. We find that um, a little bit later where they both do indeed die on the same day. And then Eli actually falls back in his chair when he learns about it, breaks his neck and dies as well. So God physically cut him off and his sons off. But he actually cut off his descendants when it got to Solomon. And the description here he gives of the of his those that are left in the line having to go beg the priests for some role in the priesthood, they become poor because they they don't get they don't get what God promised the Levites anymore because they had abandoned that 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 line, if you will. And so, ultimately, what God is telling Eli here is, I'm going to judge your your line because of what you've done because you've honored your sons, you've corrupted the priesthood, you've not honored me, you've not honored my sacrifices, so I'm going to cut you off. And it's going to impact your your descendants. And so he basically stripped Eli's descendants of any role in the priesthood. That was the consequence for their wickedness. But in that, he tells them he's going to raise somebody else up that will serve like him. Some have argued that might very well be Samuel. It could be David. But it's a promise that God made to him. Let's look at um, chapter 3. Because now we're going to see God's call on Samuel. So we get this pretty serious matter here of the priests. And again, I believe that what the author is trying to do is he's trying to establish the fact that things were not looking good in Israel because of the priesthood. The wickedness of them. 
And as we think about God being Savior and God being a God who saves, he's now going to do something that reflects that. Because Israel certainly did not deserve a leader like Samuel. And yet, God chooses to do it anyway. And so now we have this calling of Samuel, and this is a form of God's deliverance for them, and providing them with probably what will turn out to be the greatest prophet, the greatest priest, if you will, aside from from Jesus, um, and the greatest judge in Israel's history. Unfortunately, it's one of the last. And so, let's look at this calling of Samuel, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. Why do you suppose God had not been talking to the Israelites over this 40 years at least? Well, when you've got a priesthood that's in the shape it's in, and you've got judges that are buffoons, God's not speaking. In fact, we don't know exactly how long this is, but probably at least the 40 years of Eli's ministry. And it could have very well been since the time of Samuel, the last judge. Not Samuel, um, Samson, the last judge. And that would be about a total of maybe 80 years now that God has been silent, not speaking to Israel. So he doesn't tell us exactly how long it had been, but he does say that um, God had not been speaking. The book of Amos tells us that... um, the reason God does not speak is a form of judgment. It's interesting because I was talking to, um, oh, come on, Ed Zago one time. One of the patterns we see in the Bible is that God oftentimes goes silent before judgment. Stop speaking. And it's a form of judgment. It's exactly what we see here. God stopped speaking to Israel as a form of judgment. And so that's what happens here. But then something really interesting happens. With Samuel, all of a sudden now God begins to speak again, which becomes a blessing to Israel. And so we find in verse 2 that the Lord begins to speak to him. It happened at that time as Eli was lying down, this is chapter 3, verse 2, in this place, his eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see well. The concept there of eyesight going dim um, means there's a lack of wisdom as well. It's a double edged sword in some respects it's not just that he physically was losing his sight but the idea of losing your sight also um, symbolizes the idea of immorality and losing um, losing your place of authority so it says here that his eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see well and the lamp of God was not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of, the ark of God was and the Lord called Samuel and he said here I am Then he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he answered, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. That means that he wasn't familiar with him. He was in the temple serving him, but he didn't have this relationship, per se, with him, um, like we see later on. Nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. And that's the key. So the Lord called Samuel again for the third time, and he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. It's too bad that it took him three times, right? But again, God had not been speaking. And Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Then the Lord came and stood. I love that. The Lord came and stood. I don't know if that's a physical manifestation or if it's just the author's way of saying God's presence was there in the room, but knowing that Jesus Christ oftentimes is the theophany in the Old Testament, meaning when God appears, it was Jesus Christ. 
in his pre-incarnate state. So it may very well have been that what Samuel saw here was the presence of God standing before him. We don't know that for sure. Again, it could be understood as either just God's presence being there or literally, physically speaking, um, the pre-incarnate Christ standing there. But it says that the Lord came and stood and he called that called as he did at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So Samuel lay down until morning. He opened the doors of the house of the Lord, but Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Can you imagine why? God had just revealed in his first interaction with Saul or with Samuel that he was going to put Eli and his sons to death. So it would not have been an easy thing for this young boy to repeat those things to what essentially was a mentor of some sorts. He was being raised by Eli. So the Lord speaks to Samuel here. He reveals to Samuel his judgment against Eli and his house. But ultimately, this confirms Samuel as a prophet. Notice that it says, Thus Samuel grew, this is verse 19, thus, I think it's verse 19, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail. All Israel from Dan, even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Thus the word of the Lord came to all Israel. You notice how many times the word is mentioned there? It's the author's way of, again, reflecting this contrast of the Lord had not been speaking, but all of a sudden now, through Samuel... The word, the word, the word, the word. God was now speaking again to Israel through Samuel. It says that Samuel grew. He was with the Lord. He said that he didn't let any of Samuel's words, any of the prophetic utterances that Samuel would share, would fail. So what we find here is that this was the beginning of God speaking and revealing himself once again to Israel. Now why is that important? Again, as we reflect upon what was happening here in Israel's history, they didn't deserve this. They had been wicked from the core of the people all the way up to the priesthood. And so God remained silent. But like he always does, God now reaches back down to his people and does a miraculous thing. He not only judges the sin, but he provides them with this godly, gracious, God-fearing, God-loving prophet judge and priest in Samuel. And as we saw last week, that was a divine thing. It was a miracle because Hannah couldn't have kids. This has all been about God and what God is still doing with Israel in spite of the fact that Israel did not deserve it. And so as you think about what's happening in this passage, and we'll kind of wrap it up with this, I mentioned we'd see these three principles again, or these three theological themes. Well, think about this. We see God's opposition to Eli and his sons. Because of their arrogance, their pride, their sin, their corruption. Um, But we also see God exalting the humble. So we have this principle that God opposes the proud, the arrogant, but he gives grace to who? The humble. And we see that in this passage, don't we? We see what he does with the priest, the arrogant, the proud, and God's going to say, I'm opposed to you. So he basically 
pretty dramatically, terminates their lives. They haven't died yet, but they will. Um, but God completely judges them because of their opposition to him. But then we've got this young man, Samuel, a little boy, who's gracious, he's humble apparently, um, even the way he responds to the Lord speaking to him. You know, your servant is listening. And so what happens? God raises up the humble. And we'll see that in, in Samuel's life. We don't see him a lot in this text, but everything we do see about Samuel is he loves the Lord and he loves the people of God. He's humble and he's gracious, but he's bold. And so we find the principle again here that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay? The other principle, we see God pronounce judgment against Eli and his sons. He actually destroys them. And so we find that principle too, that God destroys those who oppose him, but he protects his people. And we'll see that ultimately in this passage as well, that God will continue to protect Samuel from Saul. Because Saul's not happy with Samuel. And so we're going to find that um, God will also protect Samuel. The last principle was that God is a God who saves. And again, what we see here is that we're looking at Israel and we're seeing what what a mess they're in, um, partly because of the priests, but partly because of just who they are. Um, God sends them in some respects a deliverer because that will be Samuel's role Um, even through a bad king like Saul Samuel was still there protecting the people um, guiding and directing if you will and so we have again this picture of God as Savior in this passage as well so we find these three principles that Hannah mentioned just in this passage about the calling of Samuel. So what's interesting, again, to me, is that it really isn't so much about Samuel. This is really more about God and what God is going to do for Israel. I think sometimes we can get a little bit self-focused and think that um, things are kind of about us, too. You know, I I think I mentioned something the other day about a Facebook post I saw from a friend of mine who, I don't know that he was necessarily trying to communicate this, but um, he was expressing how um, he was so appreciative that um, he was worthy of, of God's salvation. And I kinda it kinda caught me a little off guard because I'm like, wow, you know, I think I know what you maybe might be saying, but it's really more about God is awesome because he saved me when I was unworthy. Not, and I so again I don't think he was trying to communicate that I was worth saving so God saved me as much as he was trying to but it was just said in a poor way. But it made me think about how oftentimes in the church we're kinda like that, you know? We don't realize that this is all about God being a God who saves, a God who delivers. But then, sometimes after we get saved, we kind of forget that, you know, we look at the world and we start pointing our finger at the world and we start saying, you know, we're glad God is judging them and we forget sometimes that he begins with his own house. And we forget that when we're arrogant and proud, we can find ourselves in opposition to God. Now, we don't necessarily face rejection of our salvation, but the scriptures tell us that God judges. It says that he he chastises his people. And so sometimes, even as believers, we can get a little bit arrogant and proud ourselves and we can sort of begin like... or you know, act like Levi's sons. Do we see any of that in the church ever, folks? Do we ever see Christians behaving like Eli's sons? Of all people, we should know better. Now, again, we may not face, you know, um, ultimate um, eternal damnation because of our sin, but Christians can sometimes face some pretty serious chastisement when when it gets to the point where God's got to do something. And so we have to remain humble, gracious, um, not find ourselves standing in opposition to God. You know, Paul mentions people in the New Testament that God had to ultimately judge. He's talking to the Corinthians about how God had taken some of the lives of them because they were abusing the Lord's Supper. You know, and um, 
Paul basically says they're saved as if through the flames. You know, you think about Ananias and Sapphira. Is that what it was? That, uh, yeah, when they came before, they sold some of their belongings to, and tried to trick the church into thinking, we're giving it all, but they kept back a portion for themselves. And what did God do? Because he was using them in some respects as an example. Um, so sometimes we can act like Phineas and Ferb here, um, Eli's sons. And uh, we need to remember these principles as well. So I'm going to go ahead and just leave it with that. But I think, again, the, the, the primary point for us today as we look at this passage is to kind of see that contrast between Eli's sons and Samuel, but also to see that God is a God who saves. He's a gracious God who, who um, raises up the humble and, the, and, the, and those who don't stand in opposition to him. And again, that's going to be a theme that we'll see throughout this whole entire letter. And it, and it doesn't just apply to the unsaved. It applies to us as saved as well. These same three principles. Remembering that God is a God who delivers. Remembers that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. But also that God will judge the wicked, but protect his people. All right?